0: All right, welcome to another edition of the Buck and Bernie Show. Bernie, how are you? Uh, It's
1: good. It's kind of chilly here, though, for me.
0: Yes. But I like it. Yeah, you're the California climactic person. uh, (laughs) yeah. So, Well, uh, we have an interesting show for you today. Today we have uh, Glenn Papora. He is the winemaker at Spanish Valley Vineyards here in Moab, beautiful Moab, out in the valley. So we're going to take talk wine today
1: you know know, it's funny you see when i came over here my expectation was not to find a a vineyard and i remember i was just driving and i go oh there's a vineyard here so i was just wondering how in this climate you know grapes can really do and and then we met you and we're gonna go on that journey so looking forward to that
2: yeah well they do really well here you know uh, dutch simmerman and i guess the uh what was it the the State University Ag Department uh, put in about 40 acres out there. And uh, back then, they uh, they called that area known as uh, Poverty Flats. All right. So yeah. let's
0: let's go into that. Let's go yeah. into the history of the vineyard, first of all, and yeah, um, how that progressed.
2: As far as I know, I, I don't know every bit of detail on it, but I try to pick it up and listen to the old timers about it and stuff. So uh, yeah, I guess Dutch Zimmerman in the late 70s started planting uh, grapes all out in the south end of town there. Out and uh, right on the edge of the county line, out on Zimmerman Lane and Stocks Drive, and um, also in Spanish Valley Drive. There and yeah, uh, about forty acres. And oh, they tried multiple types of uh, grapes, all different uh, flavors and such. And they uh, they were pretty smart about it. They understood that it was a white wine region. You know, it's really cold here in the winter time. And I'm thinking uh, my Syrah plants out there, and you could use some little jackets and blankets. You know, it's getting pretty cold. So more northern European varietals do well out here. And this sandy, gravelly, silty clay kind of soil does, does very well with the grapes. And you say the white variety does mm-hmm. better out yeah, here. Yeah, it seems like the white right. ones do really well. More of the red uh, Mediterranean stuff. It likes a, a, a more uh, softer winter, like down in Arizona and New Mexico. Not as a deep freeze, you know.
1: So what uh, varietal do you do you have?
2: Oh uh the stuff that grows awesome here in this valley is the Riesling. Mm-hmm. Uh the Gewürztraminer does very well, the Shannon Blanc does very well. And then as far as the red grapes, uh they tried multiple uh varieties of those and they had the uh the Pinot Noir next door at Joe's property did really well. Um uh the Zinfandel did really well over at the Harris's vineyard and uh and they had a, a unique hybrid put in, and I got a bunch of people have captured all the clippings around town. Uh, this variety is called uh, Baco Noir. I believe it's a French um, white grape, uh, hybrided with an American red, mm-hmm. and uh, it's got a really hardy rootstock, and uh makes the blackest of juice. Oh, really? Yeah. It's no. a real good one. It's not very popular. I believe it is getting more and more popular uh, around the Midwest and around the East Coast, where... Um, colder climates and you know more difficult growing area
1: so as uh many of us do not know that uh, varietal well what is the um the flavor profile of that uh of that juice oh it's
2: it's your classic you know uh dark red bold uh wine like jammy um or yeah on the- it's got a nice berry to it real i want to call it really ultra earthy like a tempanillo but it's got a it's got a great body to it, um, kind of unique flavor, but you know, very similar to like a like a Cabernet and a Merlot and a Syrah, or maybe bolder than a Syrah, of course, and not a light one like a Pinot, like a Pinot Noir. It's definitely a true dark, uh, bold red wine.
1: So you are doing uh, some Meritage as well, or just pure varietal?
2: Uh, I'm doing uh, just. Blends. Um, no, I'm I'm trying to keep away from blends. I really, uh, I've just been having some really good years with my Syrah. Uh, and uh, normally I do blend a bit of the Syrah into the cab. But 2019 was such an awesome year for the uh, Gewurzteminer and the Syrah, as well as the cab did really well. And uh, I decided to just keep it separate. And that Syrah just you know flew right off the shelf. It was excellent. We did a very small production run of it. It was something about 35 cases of it, and I think I have the last bottle hidden away at my house. I'm going to let that (laughs) age for, hopefully, I can keep it on my shelf for six years and let it really mature in the bottle.
1: If we don't show up at your house, yes. If we show up at your (laughs) house, all bets are off.
2: There's some out in the open, and there's some... You know, that I just put a label on and seal it up, seal the box up with tape and just put a note on it. Do not open until 2026 or 2024. (laughs) So So, anyway, let's backtrack a little bit. And when did you come on board uh, to the the wine? Well, let's see. I I got into town around 2002. And uh, let's see. And just like every river guide need money in the fall or, yeah, or excuse me, in the uh, early spring. I just started pruning uh, grapes with this gal, uh, Mary Sheldon, and uh, we were doing the Harris's Vineyard. Um, we were also doing uh, Kenny Roberts Vineyard with the, uh, uh, what did he have? They had the Shannon, the Shannon Blanc, uh, and the Merlot, and started pruning all these different vineyards, you know, on and off for about 20 years, and then working with Corey and Stacy a little bit out at their vineyard, the uh, Spanish Valley Vineyard, and uh, I don't know, I just just kept growing on me, you know. I grew up uh, in New Jersey uh, pruning Christmas trees. So when I came out to uh, Moab and needed a buck, you know, in the wintertime, come February, you know, it's pruning season. And that's when we seem to be uh, the poorest of all. And uh, so it was easy money, you know, and just pruned away and made a couple of bucks and then started bottling, learning the equipment. Uh, back in the early 90s when I was a young man uh used to make some beer and so i understood fermentation and this and that and for me it really did not come very difficult i really it just kind of i guess it's in my blood or something and uh the pruning is easy well it took me a few years to really understand the grapes um you got to really beat them back hard don't ever give them an inch because they'll take advantage of you and i i learned that and um uh, just in the production of it all and uh it, it's pretty neat how it all comes together so you started in
0: actually in the in the vineyard mm-hmm. and then yeah came <clears throat> in the vineyard more
2: involved in producing the wine mm-hmm. then I started yeah. uh, bottling and labeling a little bit with the Celsiussis uh, the and then uh, and then they retired from it after a freeze and then I took on the project of revamping the vineyard with the Strapeika family and uh, just kept going along and reading the notes and talking with Corey and other winemakers and uh, kind of helping me along the way and working with Kurt. He was uh, very helpful and uh, teaching me all the little, some of the little nuances and things. And uh, the main thing is just understanding the recipe book and being extremely persistent. That's uh, the key. And uh, and watching the grapes and there's ways of using, sugar meters and things like that. But what it really comes down to is when that seed is finally mature and like a dark Brown and has a good crunch and yeah, man, you better be getting on it. You better mm-hmm. have everything clean and ready. And so, so what do you think is more important in the factor of
0: making the, is it, is it the grape?
2: <clears throat> oh the- yeah. It's key to have the, the best quality grapes. Um, uh, you know, I consider myself a farmer, not really a winemaker, you know, winemaking is just part of farming, and part of the process of the grapes. So, so
0: you think there should go more detail and in producing the good grape before yeah. you can get a good wine. <clears throat> oh yeah,
2: so. yeah. I mean, if you don't have good grapes, then you got to play the wine games. You know, and I've never went to any big colleges or things about the uh, perfecting the 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 uh, the manufacturing of uh, of the wine. You know, these guys are adding a lot of sugars and acids and and, and blending and, and playing these games. And it's just like, whoa, I, I don't have that kind of wine grapes to work with. I'm I'm very limited. So I do the very best I can growing them and harvesting them. And so producing. then you
0: don't have to manipulate them to, exactly. to make a good product. Mm-hmm. So it's already there, basically. Yeah.
2: Just- Th- this is really old world wines that we're doing out there. That's
0: like cooking, you know. You start out with good product, and you don't screw it up. And you that's know. very true.
1: <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, when you look at uh, what you have to do to get great wine, you have to have also, of course, you have you have to have the right rootstock. You have mm-hmm. to have the you have to have the right weather. But uh, you know, over here, you have really too extreme extreme heat in the summer. Extreme yeah. cold in the winter. So, yeah. what is the behavior, and what what do you do to continue to nurture those vines?
2: Well, you know the the cold is the is one of the big problems, and um, and that's why we're doing more northern European stuff. You know, you, the Syrah. A lot of people were saying, "Oh, that's not going to make it," and it did have a very hard time. You know, it takes three to five years to get fruit off a brand new uh, rootstock, and so the university or uh, the state university in Dutch, I think they did realize that, you know, they can't do any grafting here. So everything is either done from like a seedling or, or, um, or a little uh, sapling. Uh, And then they just let them really hunker into the ground. And that's the whole key is um, about the first three to five years you're producing fruit about 10 years down the road. Then you have a substantial uh, rootstock and then the great, uh, plant can really handle the deep cold so when they first planted the Syrah you know a lot of them did freeze out mm-hmm. and a lot of them came back and then I've been um, growing the vines out and then burying a, a wild uh, uh, what we call it uh, a wild uh, trunk over into the dirt and then have the mother plant um, re-establish a new uh, rootstock and then just kind of leapfrogging the empty spots in the vineyard by doing this, I've tried like putting clippings in and things like that, and <clears throat> the chances of just taking uh, clippings and put them into the ground, it's very difficult because of the dry climate here. I always have to keep them uh, dripping, and then I wind up overwatering the plant, mm. the, the older ones, and then to try to start a young plant on the main irrigation system um, is very difficult. So I find the best way is just to bend one of the trunks down or grow a third trunk along the waterline, and then just buried into the ground.
1: How old is your oldest
2: plant? Uh, I think it's the Riesling. I think that's the oldest vineyard in town. Uh, I could be wrong, but um, um, at least commercially, anyway. Uh, I think Dutch and some of the gang were putting in the plants in the late 70s. Wow. And I think a lot of them uh, succumbed to just neglect. Um, And then some of them that have uh, a decent runoff water source are are probably still alive. So
0: how long does it take from planting a new vine till you get it well established and it starts producing
2: good fruit? About three to five years. Yeah, before you get your first harvest. And then about 10 years, you have a really substantial root system. And then you're going to get a better uh, flavor out of the plant for sure. So it's
0: 10 years, basically. Yeah, 10 years. Mm
2: -hmm. And then you hear... uh, a lot of people bragging about these old growth vines and things like that. Right. And um, yeah, you have this huge root system, which is really key. Um, and then, you know, some of the trunks, you got to know when to cut the trunk down. And I find out here um, and uh, in this region here that the cold weather, you have uh, uh, frost and things and it damages the buds. And then the plant isn't doing exactly what you want it to. So I re-trunk the plants Oh, probably just under every ten years is what I've been doing now. For whenever there's kind of damage, we use a uh, we set up the plan as a like a double cordon. We have two trunks that come up on the on the low wire, and it's mainly if you hit it with the weed whacker or the tractor hits it, or there's disease, or if you have any kind of problem, then you just remove that one trunk, and then you can bend down the very first branch on the other trunk to fill in that wire space. And then out of the root ball, out will come suckers every year. And then you just capture the one that you um, that you like and then encourage it up onto the wire. And then you have that half of the plant replaced. And then the following year or the next year, you cut down the other trunk and, and leapfrog a new one in, in its place. You know, empty wire does not make any money.
0: So weather's a big factor, evidently. Yeah. And the season, and uh, didn't it seem like lately... The weather's become so unpredictable from season to season, is Oh,
2: isn't it? God, yes. You know, we get these early freezes in April of 2020, and that froze a lot of the buds and all the new growth. Out in Palisade, Colorado, they had a big problem with it as well. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, no peaches that year. Um, and we had no uh, fruit on our trees out there at the little vineyard. Uh, and there's nothing you
0: can do once you...
2: Yeah, it the plant's damaged and then you you know all the buds on the top of the plant are uh, abandoned and then the plant starts blowing buds out of the bottom of the plant and then you try to correct that and start pruning the plant back up and at that time it's just it's just better to rechunk the plant. It was 7 years old on the Cabernet and then the craziest thing happened in uh last year in 2020 in early October. I don't remember the date, but it was probably right around October 10th or 15th. The plants were still up and green, and it just froze deep. It got down to twenty degrees and cracked all the trunks of the vineyard.
1: That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Oh, I mean, man. it just, especially after all those years, and you have these beautiful vines who just just died. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah.
2: Well, they didn't die. They just they just needed pruning to the ground, and that's why yeah. we're the last vineyard, pretty much standing. Uh, all the old timers that started planting these things. Back in the 70s. I believe it is frozen now four times to the ground.
1: So, so so, we talk about those challenges. No trouble much with disease? Well, like phylloxera or something like that. No, we don't have
2: that. Um, I heard um, that is working its way into Colorado. Um, no, you know, we're not part of the American um, Vinicultural Association, which, you know, it's kind of detrimental in certain ways. But in another way, we're out here in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And it's awesome. So we're not... Uh, picking up diseases from the other neighbors and things like that. Um, there is a Southwest bacterial problem that we have uh, and it's called the uh, uh, crown gall. It's a bacteria that gets into the soil. I'm sure you've all seen it out in the wild where like an Oak tree will have a round ball on its leaf mm-hmm. or on its, on its little twig. And it's a bacteria that gets into the plant from an injury and it goes systemic into the plant and you can never, Truly get away, get it out of the plant. You can cut it and remove it. But when the plant I don't know, has a hard time and not enough water or something like that, the bacteria can start um, working its way into the trunk. And then if I see any of that, um, I immediately remove it and start to plant over. Because trying to limp uh, a, a problem plant, it just doesn't work. And then the quicker you get it out, the sooner you're going to be- get a better production.
1: All right, so I want to talk about the fun, because ah. in France, <clears throat> it's always fun when we have harvest time. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a huge business inside of France, in, in the Noir Valley, where I'm from. And as it, this is for me, I remember when I was a kid, I did it. Everybody thinks it's not that much work. It's a lot of work. But when is harvest time for you over here? And, and who is doing it besides yeah. you?
2: Well... Uh, I don't do too much of the harvesting. Usually the first or, uh, uh, first or second day I'm out there harvesting with the crew. And I've got this uh, this little old lady, uh, Mamie, a Navajo uh, grandmother out there. And uh, thanks to Mamie, um, God, we really uh, we really crush it out there. Um, this gal, she's bringing in over like 1,000 pounds of, uh, of grapes a day. Whoa. Yeah, she is smooth and uh, it, it's great um between me and her out there the first day we just the the two of us will get a ton and then she usually brings up some family members that are you know really good with it and then a couple of locals here and there i can uh talk into working hard for a few days and you know we get those grapes off the vine and a good year we'll uh we'll produce 20 tons
1: take us through the process we have the grapes what do you do with it
2: oh well first um, the easiest way to harvest these things is just remove the leaves from around the fruit just because otherwise you're you're kind of fighting it looking for them and the leaves are in your way I just shred the leaves right out of the way as fast as I can and then I'm just very efficient always leaving my pruners right next to the fruit cutting the fruit out dropping it into a five gallon bucket and when your bucket's full um, we have all these little yellow like basically shopping baskets They hold about 30 pounds of fruit. And then you empty your bucket into the yellow basket. And we have one about every other plant, so you don't have to go far. And then just top it off, make the basket level, um, get to your next plant. So it seems about every two plants can fill a basket on a good year. And then before you know it, man, it's, it's a lot of work. We're out there at sunrise. Mamie gets out there before I do. She's incredible. Uh, She's out there at 6.30, right when you can start seeing light. And um, I'm out at the supermarket. I'm out getting food and coffee and everything for the crew. I get there about just before 7. I start making coffee. I ring the bell, the classic uh, uh, big bell we got out (laughs) there. Everybody comes in, gets some coffee and donuts, gets all jacked up and sugared up. And then we go out there and we hit it hard. And then about 11.30, I try to break away. <clears throat> like if we're harvesting up the Gewurz demeanor, we start to sauerkraut and bratwurst and, and try to make some good meals that uh, pair with the wine. And uh, we take a nice about an hour break and then uh, we work almost all the way to uh, sunset. I try not to because uh, cause if we work to sunset, then Glenn's working into the dark, uh, Get picking up all those baskets. And um, I'd say the toughest job is the guy who's running the tractor. Because he's got to get all the baskets from the one row, put them in the center row, and then get the baskets from the other row to his right, put them in back into the center. So he's already picked them up once, and then he's got to pick them up one more time and put them in the tractor, and then he brings them back to the pad, and then he'll help unload. And you know, I'll be on the pad cleaning and working the press and everything, and we'll unload them. So you know, doing the tractor, you're you're picking them up like three times before you even get them into the, uh, into the shop. So
0: are you already starting to press at this point? Well,
2: the first two days we, we harvest and then we gather up about two tons of grapes, maybe a little bit more. And then from there on, it's just me on the press. Um, sometimes there's a, a, a guy out there, big Dave, another chef, and he's helping me and he's, he's such great help out there. And, uh, I'm working with the customers a lot, doing some wine tastings or, or, I just leave him on the press and he just he knows how to run that equipment really well. And uh yeah, he's been such a great help.
1: So you will press all the grapes in one day? Uh, what does uh, it uh, well, how long does it take?
2: Well, the press that we have is a 650 liter Italian press which is roughly um about 1 ton of mm-hmm. weight. And so that we kind of figured it out it takes about 66 baskets to fill this thing. So after we get uh all our baskets full we put them in the shop at night and cool them off because when we harvest it can be really hot out Mm -hmm. and so the the temperature inside the winery is right about 62 degrees it's a perfect temperature so the grapes are all cooled off by the morning and then we uh we sanitize the press and the crusher and the bins and the big fruit uh bin and and uh the catch buckets and the pumps and the hoses and the fermenting tanks it's a lot of cleaning, you know. Mm. Winemaking is not very glorious. You're just a professional cleaner, right? It yeah. really is. You have to keep
0: everything sanitized. Oh gosh, cause...
2: yeah. And when you, yeah, and when you think it's clean, well, then just clean it one more time, just to make sure. Because we put so much hard work into that, you know, just to to not do that extra five minutes of cleaning, um, just, just could be disastrous, right?
0: Because once you introduce bacteria, yeah, it's and, all.
2: And okay. it's already there. And so with the wine, it's important to get a quick fermentation going. So you're immediately making alcohol to sterilize things. And, uh, and we do use a little bit of sulfites, uh, depending on what kind of grape we're doing and what we're dealing with. Uh, we do a, a, a real neat way to make this delicious Convert's demeanor. We bring the, uh, uh, the grapes in off the wires, what we call off the plant, bring it into the, into the shop. We cool it off. And then <clears throat> I don't uh, press it immediately. Um, we send it through the crusher destemmer, the and then w- what happens is we cold maciate the grape, and then we let it soak on the skins for two days, and then you really get a lot of color and flavor out of that. Converts demeanor. I believe in uh, Germany and other places, they just bring it right off the wire and then they press it. Um, being in this climate where the um, the grape matures very quickly in the heat. And so our harvest on the converts demeanor usually comes in the last week of August. And the seed is brown. And this is a plant, like, it is a very difficult plant to work with. You have to sucker the bottom of the plant several times in the summer. It really wants to be a wild plant laying on the ground. And so I'm always trimming off the bottom, bringing all the energy up into the trunk and to the fruit. And it, it's just, uh, it's a lot of maintenance on this plant. And But it's such a delicious grape. Um, I mean, you could just sit there and eat them all day, but uh, that could be kind of problematic to the stomach. But it's uh, it really is good. The skins are really soft and light. Um, it, it's almost like a table grape, and it's really sweet. It's it's just delicious. But as it's ripening, you know, you're watching for that seed to turn brown, and I'm using my uh, refractometer to watch the sugar levels. But more importantly, I'm being very careful to uh, make sure the acids don't drop on the wine. You can only go so far with this grape. And then uh, one day all the acids will be gone. And then you're going to have to play this uh, winemaker game. And uh, it's better to sacrifice a little bit of sugar and have all that delicious acid than to uh, add uh, sugars and, and, and play these acid games. I know back east, they just don't have the climate like we do. And what makes Moab so great is that we have these hot days and more importantly, these cool nights right around harvest time. And the sugars just go right through the roof i get people who are like what are you doing out here and i just i just laugh and i'm like i'm like i'm like you guys have to add sugar and they're like oh yeah we're we doing all these games and i'm just like oh yeah I'm, yeah I, I guess i'm lucky i i just have a good vineyard <laughs> <laughs>
1: nice. well i think you have a good vineyard but you also have very good and smart practice um, mm-hmm. by keeping it very you know i would say on the uh, old-fashioned way to run it the ancient way to to to, yeah. to really run it you're able to extract what the soil really all those minerals and as well as the weather to yeah. all, do, all to the plant into the grapes so that makes it just gorgeous yeah
2: and the beauty is we have like 1400 uh demeanor we got about 2000 riesling uh we don't have much uh cabernet or syrah we got about 400 plants of uh, cabernet and about 100 syrah so when the time is right we just get it off the wire with five harvesters. It just takes us not very long. So, you know, these bigger vineyards in California and in the rest of the world, you know, these guys, you know, they're like up on the top of the Hill on the West face. Cause that's where the grapes are like perfect. And so they start there. And then by the time they get all the way to the bottom of the Hill, um, you know, it just, it takes them so long to, to do this production and the, the amount of people and, um, it's just so difficult to organize and to do it so promptly when the grapes are, are right. And so some vineyards will actually start bringing the grapes in a little early, just right before their peak. And then they get a lot of them during their peak. And then they get a lot of them, um, when they're a little slightly overripened. when they have to, when they lose a little of their acid, they get the sugar, but they lose the acid. So a lot of the game is start harvesting a little early, Get a lot of that acid, get the grapes perfect, and then get your sugar at the end of the harvest and you'll be lacking a little bit of the acid. So it's like, it's a hard game to play. And when the rain hits, oh my God, that is difficult. Now you're just, your perfect year has just gone to hell. Mm-hmm. Um, especially with that reverse demeanor. If we get monsoons going and we start rinsing out that grape, it's it's difficult to work with. Um you know, you'd lose your acids and things like that. And then you could wait maybe a week and some of that stuff returns, but you're kind of kidding yourself. You know, your perfect year has just gone to hell. So, so our, there's
0: yeah. there's so many factors that yeah, go I mean, into
2: having a great yeah, wine that year. Yeah. And, and what, what point
0: do you know? What point is that that you know that it's going to be good?
2: When I finally get it off the wire. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's not over until it's over. And then when I have the true control of it, when it's in the shop, even then, you know, you just got to be so persistent. You know, it takes nine months to make it. And there's no hurry to ruin anything. You know, you don't need to. You just got to be patient. But when the time is right, you got to go, go, go on it. That is so key.
1: So now it is bottled. Now there is some um, guideline that you can give everyone when it comes to aging wine or keeping that that wine was going to really be good at a certain point and at one point you really can go you know sideways so if you look at your givers you see you know what givers you keep it like a, a year in the bottle two years in the bottle or what's what's your rule of thumb depending oh. on the weather and harvest, of course
2: oh uh, as far as the the wine in the bottle uh, well it takes us about nine models uh <clears throat> excuse me about nine months to get these up. Uh, Uh, the wine into the bottle. Um, And then I do this uh, French Riesling and and send off the, uh, an ML fermentation or malolactic fermentation. And uh, that will take two years when Mm -hmm. you treat that white wine, like a red wine. And it's, it's delicious. Um, And I just produced about 400 gallons of that this year, but it won't come to bottle until uh, uh, 2023. Yeah, I made, I started a batch of this kind of French style Riesling in 2018. Um, That went to bottle and we drank it all in 2020. I made about 60 cases of it. And again, it flew off the shelf. It was, it was beautiful. It was this soft, uh, buttery. When you uh, add that malolactic bacteria to it, it changes the uh, malolactic fermentation to lactic acid, just like a uh, Chardonnay. It makes this beautiful buttery riesling really soft uh and then i put just a little bit of french oak on it and it, oh it, I, I nailed it
1: uh, tell good. me a bit because you know we say we're going to put a bit of french oak mm-hmm. so you mean that you're going to age it in oak barrels like this uh, oh
2: we have done some barreling in the past um but it's not very cost effective we're just this tiny little wine shop we don't have much room for storage uh, we work with the uh, Stave and Barrel Company, and so we get these uh, French-roasted, uh, um, medium-roasted uh, oak chips, and that is, uh, it's very, they're, 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 it's the top quality oak. You got to use the top stuff. Um, barrels, they're now about $1,500 a piece. Um, they're like, oh, about 50, 60 gallons, so when you have a half a barrel, I mean, you, you can't fill it, and then... Yeah, it's just easier for us to just use the uh, the oak chips mm-hmm. and then it, it' we have great control of it. Um, you know I talk to the barrel company and and I tell them the volumes that I have and what I'm doing and they're extremely helpful and then they send me out the right uh, volume of chips and they come in a nice little like uh, cheesecloth nylon bag and you yeah, open them up the the stainless tank and you toss it in there. And they give you um, a recommended aging time with it. And uh, you can go lighter or longer, you know, and, and or you could actually add a little extra chips. And I really don't like over-oaking my wines. Um, you're just hiding something with vanilla and an oak. And I really try to make the berry shine. My Cabernet is really fruit-forward. It's a medium-bodied cab. You know, we're we're not producing the boldest of red wines out here by any means, but that Riesling really turns a lot of heads. And that French Riesling that I do is, is outstanding.
0: The Riesling, the Riesling mm-hmm. is your flagship wine. It, it
2: is, that, the Gewurz demeanor, um, you know, if I could produce that Syrah um, and take my time with it, that thing is amazing. The Cabernet's pretty good flavors, but when you're dealing with, like, these big guys in uh, California and in Washington, um, the, the grape, it just, it just likes the, uh, the higher humidities and things like that. I mean, the desert grows a really nice berry and everything for that thing. But um, to, pe- to uh, compete with the cool kids is, is just, you just, I mean, they can't do the Riesling that I do. Your, Every region is, is, is special in a certain
1: way. Your wines represent the region. Mm-hmm. that's exactly what it is yeah. so that's why it's not even competing yeah. because yeah. it's completely different regions so you will have different, uh, mm-hmm. different results
2: yeah
0: for sure on that well and- that's why in, in France that's why each region is specific to the wine mm-hmm. and that's, that's what they do they do the wine that they produce best and yeah. instead of trying to do everything you know which isn't doable anyway but you do what you can do Mm-hmm. And you do
1: it right, right? Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. When I go out and to different regions, I go and see what's what their region is all about and have their delicious wines. You know, to judge a region by what I make here, to you know, I'll be like, oh, let me try your Riesling, and you know, it's just it's just it's just not there. I go there and I go to California for the Zinfandel and for the and for the Cabernet. I go to the Northwest for the Pinot Noir. You know. So I guess probably the closest wine region to Moab would be Palisade,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Does, yeah. Does and what are they, what are they doing over there?
2: They're doing a lot of uh, man, they've got a lot of different varieties. There's a lot of different people from uh, Europe uh, working those areas, and they're bringing some of their homeland kind of grapes. And um, I haven't really checked it out too deeply, but I know they do a lot of Riesling and Gewürztraminer as well. Um, they are dabbling in with a lot of red grapes. And, uh, they're doing a pretty good job with it as well.
0: So is there any other, uh, vintners in the area that you source out to?
2: Um, in the future, I will be getting the, uh, grapes from, uh, Montezuma Ranch in, in Monticello. Yeah. Okay. They have, uh, a Danny Bull planted this vineyard, I believe about 10 years ago. And then he recently so- sold it to, um. Uh, Jude and Dixie. I don't remember their last name. They're pretty good friends of mine now. Uh, I've been helping them along a little bit, um, during harvest, just basically just checking their grapes and make sure they're really ready. And they were selling them off to, uh, Sutcliffe's, um, winery in in Colorado. And, uh, and I'm, I'm looking forward to doing business with these guys in the, in the near future. They did cut their plants, uh, prune them down to the ground this last year. I was really hoping to get some Merlot out of them. They have Merlot, they have uh, Chardonnay, and they have a bunch more Riesling. Hmm. So I'm really looking forward to getting my hands on that Merlot and, and uh, Chardonnay. So
0: were they, are they located at the foot of the Bajos?
2: or? No, they're uh, down Montezuma Canyon. Oh, so okay. I so think they're at an elevation of about 5,500 feet. So their crop uh-huh. comes in a little later which is perfect. Then I can harvest my crop yeah. and then I can deal with theirs and timing is everything. Right. You know, it really is. And to be overwhelmed with my little vineyard and then they got, they've got a substantial vineyard. I believe they have about uh close to 15 acres. Yeah. So they've got, they've got a lot of juice. To yeah. Be, that's
0: to a be lot. Add. Yeah. So is this pretty much your downtime? I mean, as
1: far as...
2: No, actually, like, i got to go to the winery here in a few hours and uh, rack the uh, cherry wine that I make. Uh,
1: okay. Okay, so, wait yeah. a minute. Cherry wine.
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we get these r- really nice, beautiful uh, uh tart pie cherries from Payson, Utah.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And just, you know, as the crow flies, I don't know, about 150 miles from here, you know, just below, uh, uh, south of uh, uh, Provo. uh Anyway, this beautiful orchard out there, uh has been going I th- think since about 1925. Wow. Yeah. So these guys know what they're doing as far as uh orchards. And we we get a couple of tons every year and then we produce wine out of it. And it's got really really high acid these tart cherries. Yeah, I've
0: tasted it. It's very flavorful. But yeah. it's ta- it tastes like cherry pie. Mm-hmm. I mean that's because that is a uh pie cherry basically, isn't it?
2: Yeah. And then Yeah, exactly. And then yeah, a juice cherry. But it's yeah, it's And beautiful. you make wine
1: out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tell us, tell us the process of it.
2: Uh, <laughs> it's kind of it's funny. Uh, yeah, this is the only uh, wine that I really kind of play winemaker with. So I get the cherries in. Um, they're harvested fresh uh, in July, I believe, uh, is when they harvest these cheese cherries. And then they freeze them for us, which is perfect. And then I can get to it when I'm done with all my harvest. And the freezing is actually really, really nice because when I thaw them out, they're macerated. they're they just they're mush. well, they're they're almost mush, but um, so <clears throat> I take the cherries, it takes about a week to warm them up, and then, um, as they're warming, I add just a little bit of sulfites to it about. 15 parts per million of uh, potassium metal bisulfite. And that keeps any bacteria and fermentation from kicking in. But you're kind of kidding yourself when, because they're going to ferment no matter what you do. So it, again, it's all about timing. So I thaw them out and then I measured the bricks of sugar in them, you know, the European scale. And these guys came in about, oh, they were really awesome cherries this year. Uh, and they came in at about 16 bricks of sugar and then I adjust the the sugar with, with uh, um, cane sugar. So I add a bunch of cane sugar to it to bring it up to 22 bricks. So I bring it up to about 11.5, 12% alcohol, and with the sugar, I have to add the water, and that's pretty much it. And then I, I get it to temperature, um, and then they're all macerated like that, and then um, I, I use this red wine yeast this year. Uh, the first Most of the time, I use a, a fruit wine yeast, And it's been working pretty good. And I started reading more about the red wine yeast that I use for my uh, Cabernet and Syrah. It's a really nice uh, yeast that brings out the body and brings out the color. And then I use this yeast into it and uh, it really made a difference. The color of this uh, cherry wine is is really, really dark. Um, And then I use a pectic enzyme and that's really, really important. And the pectic enzyme, because the pectin in the wine or in the fruit uh, will always make your wine uh, hazy, so just about I think it was about eight milliliters, just a few drops of this stuff per uh, about sixty gallons. Um, really, just makes the wine come clear. Uh, a lot of winemakers use bentonite and things like that to fine their wine to make them come clear, and that just I don't like to use that in in my process with my flavors. Um, it really strips too much of the flavor away. It makes them ultra smooth. Um, certain wines that are really sharp, um, you want to use a bentonite, you know, to knock that edge off of it. But for my stuff, I really want to truly bring out the real, um, flavor in the wine. And so the enzymes are great. They make it come clear. They bring out more color. Um, it's just less is more. That's what it's really about, Mm -hmm. you know? And then right now, this time of year, I have to rack the wine. And now I bring the whole room down to about 34 degrees and cold stabilize the wine. And then it comes really ultra clear and sparkling. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I try to get the room down for two weeks to about 34 degrees and it takes some time to do that. So this is great. These cold nights right now, it's the time to get the fan running. And the winery, it's a small little shop, but it was uh, designed very well. Uh, the concrete floors are double thick and that really holds temperature. And that is so key. And so it takes a long time to finally get all that concrete and all these big 500-gallon wine tanks to, uh, to really cool down. And then they become really stable like that. And then just let it age.
1: So what is the uh, amount of the volume? How many cases do you produce when you put them all together?
2: Yeah. Um, on a good year, like uh, 2019, we did 20 tons. Uh, that was just about... Three thousand gallons. So we're we're the little guy. No, that's good. You know? no, that's, yeah, that's that's that's, a, that's enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, for, twenty tons is very really impressive precings. for more. Right. Right? I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's yeah. And so that's, that's why we're really uh looking forward to uh, work with Montezuma uh, uh, Canyon and uh, Resort down there because those guys they got a ton of Merlot and more Riesling and then Chardonnay because mm-hmm. uh, we sold out on our cab. This was like the first year ever. We really. Charged All through right. it, and again with the 400 plants, and then the Syrah, so it was close to 200 cases of red wine, and you know that went right out the window.
0: So your wine yeah. is uh, distributed through the state liquor store, mm-hmm.
2: yeah. barely, so,
0: barely. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. they're uh,
2: they're very but, very very difficult to work with.
0: But people can also visit the winery, yeah, and purchase it there, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. also taste it,
2: correct? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah we're we're not a bar, so we do tastings and sales, right? Yeah, so, with this strange. Yeah liquor laws of of Utah it's uh it's one of the reasons why we're the last one standing
0: yeah but yeah. you're only you're only distributed through the through the state
2: yeah yeah right now we don't send any of the wines out of state and we don't ship either it's, right. it's very difficult yeah. with all the different liquor licenses and the laws and this and that and we're a small guy so um, for us to ship it's it's not really worth it yeah
0: so the best way is
2: Go to the winery. I think yeah. you go,
1: when you go to the winery, what you're able to really get is, is meeting you, seeing what the w- winery is all about, looking at the, at, at the vine, the vineyard, and, and really immerse yourself in what the history of this winery is all about. And I think that anybody who travels around, that's what they need to do. Just stop by. It's really easy to get as well.
0: Right. Yeah, yes. Indeed. And it's an experience. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, it's a beautiful location. It's just sitting underneath that little tree, that little hawthorn tree, is 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 just so nice. Yeah, we got uh, all the grapes around us. Uh, we got crazy wildlife running up and down the street. I was going to mention the wild turkeys yeah. around. <laughs> yeah, they were cute <laughs> a couple of years ago. Now. they're... <laughs> Now they're a handful. That's right.
1: So you can't get a wild turkey and a bottle of wine at the same time? Uh, if you get them with your
2: bumper or your car, can't go for it. But yeah. they, they know my white truck. They see me coming and they run. But uh, yeah, they're, they're something else, those turkeys. Yeah, they ate, I think, 100 cases of wine a few years ago. Yeah. it was dev- They like about devastated. That's why I ran out of red wine. Those damn turkeys. turkeys. I'm serious. They ate 50 cases, I bet, of red wine. And then they went over to the Riesling, but they prefer the red wine. They really do. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And then I'm glad that the Syrah is on the very, very far side of the vineyard, and they haven't found that
1: yet. Well, yeah. I have a funny story. When I was a little boy, my neighbor was doing some uh, some distilling. They were distilling some, uh, some uh, uh, cider. So I was maybe like seven, eight years old. I was my dad. And I'm looking at the at the chicken and the chicken are pecking. They're eating all the stuff around it. And I'm like, Papa, what's wrong with the chicken? He goes, What do you mean, what's wrong? So yeah, look, they're walking, they're falling. They're walking, they're falling. Yeah, they were drunk. That's <laughs> unbelievable. So I wonder, if your turkey, hit that much grapes? No, no, not yet. So. <laughs> no,
2: they're not. Now they it, it was good. We had some locals come up and they were. Uh, they uh, took our secondary fruit off the wire for us. And, uh, normally the birds will get that. And I was like, you guys want that fruit, go for it and, uh, starve those turkeys out, get them to move on.
0: Okay, great. So anyway, what I would suggest if you're in the Moab area is to visit the winery and experience it. Are you open all winter or no?
2: Uh, we're, I'm not quite certain. I'm trying (laughs) to take a vacation, Yeah. (laughs) but yeah, yeah, just, uh, just call but we're normally right. open yeah monday uh through saturday uh noon to 6 and, okay. and not on holidays as well just like the liquor store liquor store hours
0: right so that's cool anyway it's 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 a great uh it's a great thing to experience in in Moab area so it's uh, yeah it's it's
1: really, it's very very unique as i say when i came in the region i have i, I was shocked that it was a there was a winery here I was like, really? What kind of wine do they make? I mean, the climate is really, really harsh with the high heat and the really, really cold, cold winter. Mm-hmm. And it's really neat to, to see yeah. that we have somebody who is passionate, who really is um, you know, running that, that beautiful winery. It's really awesome. Yeah. yeah. So well, thank you. Uh,
0: thanks, Glenn, for joining us yeah. today. Yeah. In, thank you. Uh, the Buck and Bernie Show on today's yeah.
1: That's where, it. I love having yeah. you. Yeah. So. Stay tuned. Right. There will be way more,
0: and in the we'll future. be we'll be out to visit you soon. Yeah,
1: I, I bet you take... will.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right.
1: So, what do you think, Bernie?
2: You know,
0: you're French. You come from wine country, and you we're in California. Yeah. What do you think about wine and? It's, it's, it's
1: really fascinating to me to to see that this small little town has its own terroir when it comes to to their wines, because uh, the mineral, the soil. Uh, and, and everything really the, with the makeup of that grape is really unique to the region, and this is this is this is amazing to have a a gentleman uh, Glen who is a winemaker who is so passionate, and I think that the passions come through the wine. I mean, you can tell that he's so invested, he cares, and and and, and the juice is beautiful. The wines are amazing.
0: Well, and that's what's interesting is that it's it's about the grape. It's about the the farming and the harvesting, and and not so much about making. You know, if you like, I said, if you have a good product and or a good ingredient with the grape, and then it'll produce a good wine. So yeah, the
1: only thing is That's... you always add the mercy of mother nature. Correct. Like why yeah. mother nature is going to send at you? And this is right. where Glenn really shines because he's pretty much ready for everything and anything was thrown at him. Yeah. And this is why these, their, their wines are just amazing.
0: It is the season to enjoy. Indeed. So, indeed. Yeah. So, All right. Well, it's been a great show and, uh, Thanks for joining us on KZMU, the Buck and Bernie Show for another edition. And uh, we look forward for many more and having you join us.
1: And as I always say, life is delicious if more butter on KZMU.